Built Not Born, episode 33. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Ron Skatarzak. Ron Skatarzak is the executive vice president for marketing sponsorships for the Madison Square Garden Entertainment Corporation. In his role, Ron leads two of the three sales teams responsible for promoting the professional sports teams of MSG, like the New York Rangers, the New York Knicks, also seven venues, which include Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall, and two regional sports networks. On the podcast today, Ron and I discuss his journey from growing up in the Port Richmond section of Philadelphia that ultimately led him up to the Big Apple and the biggest stage on earth, Madison Square Garden. Ron and I speak why all great leaders need to be great listeners. And we speak of the need for mentors and how his mentor, Scott O'Neill, who at one point became the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers, had a tough conversation with him about the art of listening that changed his career. We also touch on why human relationships are the most important thing in the world. And finally, a COVID-19 shutdown, how it affected an elite venue like Madison Square Garden. I'd like to thank Ron for coming on the podcast. He is a busy guy. You could hear the phone ring in his office multiple times during our conversation. He has a lot on his plate and I really appreciate his time. He dropped some great leadership lessons and some great wisdom on creating culture and building a team. So Ron, I thank you. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Ron Skatarzak, Executive Vice President for the Madison Square Garden Entertainment Corporation. And remember, life is built, not born. Ron Skatarzak, welcome to the show. Great to be here. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you? And what do you do? So my name is Ron Skatarzak. I am the executive vice president of marketing partnerships and premium hospitality at the Madison Square Garden Entertainment Company. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. So I've been at, at MSG. Most people know Madison Square Garden, the venue, but I've been at this company for almost 14 years now and lead two of the three major sales groups within the organization. But it's funny when you ask me, who am I? I, I thought you might want that answer. What's my career and what's my role now? But actually what popped in my mind is more importantly, Aaron's husband, Drew, <laughs> Alex, and Ryan's father. That's way more of an important role than that mouthful I just spit out for you about my career. I want to get into MSG, how you got there, your very unique career path that took you through China a couple other professional sports organizations in your role as an adjunct professor at Villanova. But before we do, I want to start all the way back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, in an area of Philadelphia called Port Richmond, which was a very ethnic Polish and German area of Philadelphia back in the 70s when I grew up. And, and much of that defined me when I was younger. What was it like 
around the dinner table, say when you were 10 years old, I find 10 years old, a very formative time in people's lives. Who was there? What was going on? Describe the scene. I have two siblings. I, I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger brother, uh, Matt, who's two years younger. And then the young, youngest is my sister, Stephanie, who's five years younger. And thinking back then, first of all, we were always at the dinner table, which was fortunate. So it was the three of us with my mom and my dad. What do I remember? I remember my mom cooking every night, getting very frustrated when one of us wouldn't eat what she cooked. I remember my father most times coming right in from work. He worked much of his entire career at Sears, starting as a stock boy when he was 17 years old. I remember him coming home and basically sitting right down at the dinner table. That's how the timing worked out. I remember a very animated table. It was very loud. There was often a lot of laugh, but also being very frank, a lot of yelling and screaming. And that was what it was like around my dinner table about when I was a kid. Oh, that's awesome. How about looking back at that time? What's the most powerful memory of your childhood? Wow. If you talk about the young age that, you know, up till I was 10, 12, preteen, I have a really great memory of growing up in what was probably considered a low middle class or poorer area of Philadelphia. I don't remember that as a kid. I, what I remember is that at that time, you had a lot of friends. And I remember being outside all day, every day and playing with my friends. And I talk about this in other contexts a lot, but one powerful memory that I have is that at that time in that area where I lived, you walked in all your neighbors' houses. You didn't knock on the door. You didn't ring the doorbell. Nobody had their doors locked. Matter of fact, in many instances, doors were wide open. That's what I remember of my young childhood was this feeling of being in a real neighborhood and community. And whether you were in arguments with others or not, it was very open and, uh, and it was a great childhood. Wow, that's great. How different is it today? If you just walked into someone's house like my one neighbor is an army vet. He says, someone comes in my house, they better have their vest on. And it's sad. Yeah. It, it's sad. And look, I'm sure back then there were tons of challenges, different challenges, maybe a lot of the same as well. But I don't remember it that way as a kid. And I do, when I think back to those days, I think very fondly of them. And when I fast forward to now, it actually saddens me that kind of this feeling of community isn't the way that it was back when I was a kid. And I wish we could get back there somehow. When you look back at that time, who was your biggest influence? Who's my parents. And, and, and for different reasons. My mom was more of the nurturing ones. But I will say both very type A, which for those that know me, where I got it. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was, was always the one that made me feel like I could do anything. To this day, I still don't get me wrong. I've had wobbles in my lifetime about that feeling of being able to do anything that I truly set my mind to. But for the most part, that's kind of maintained and made me. And that comes from my mom. My dad taught me the importance of detail. My dad was a perfectionist. For those of us, you know, that kind of study this stuff, there's certainly positives of that mentality. And there's definitely downsides to it as well. And I got both from my father. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. And this is now going back to high school. But this story about my dad, I think, describes both sides perfectly. My dad never missed 
one of my high school games sport. I was a three sport athlete. He never missed a game. And this is a guy that was a blue collar worker at Sears his entire life, but somehow he managed a way to make every one of my games on the other side. I remember when I was a senior, I had a great basketball game when I was a senior at Cherokee high school in, in South Jersey. I scored 33 points. I just remember at home after the game, I had a lot of friends over and it was joyous. I remember my dad saying to me, yeah, but how many turnovers did you have? That was my dad. On the one hand, so involved and really redeeming that he never missed anything. And I really appreciated that. That's how I try to handle my kids um, now. But on the other hand, it wasn't about what I did well. It was about pointing out what I should have done better. And that stayed with me quite a bit. So how do you deal with that now? Because that's something that yeah. could carry on. You could, you, that not, not only can that carry on through you, you could pass that on to your kids. Yeah, it's interesting. I struggled and was really frustrated with my father for quite a long time when I got older, late teens, college, early adulthood. And I remember saying to myself, I got to learn from this and make sure that if and when I ever do have a family and children, that I'm not pointing you know, out my kids' faults that I forget what they say, Joe, but like for every criticism, you want to compliment 10 times, 10 to one or a ratio like that. I remember saying to myself, that's how I have to be. But the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I struggle with that too at times. And if you ask my wife, Erin, or ask any of my three kids, they'll say dad can be hard you know, at times, but I am conscious of it and I try to do better. I also will say that career-wise in many respects, that mentality of focusing on detail and caring and being passionate and accountable has really driven me. And I give my dad a lot of credit for teaching me that in, in his own special way. Yeah. It's almost like your greatest strength can also be your biggest weakness. And that yep. strength that propelled you to where you are is also something you have to keep in check because if someone scores 30 points, maybe they just want to hear a good game, not that you turn the ball over six times. It's just, it's an art form doing stuff like that. If we would ask the senior in high school, Ron Skatarzak, what you wanted to be when you grew up, what would that 17, 18 year old version of you? I'm being literal here at that point. I still thought I was going to be a professional athlete, which now 30 plus years later sounds silly, but sports were my life and absolutely defined me. I was a recruited athlete, but back then I was a division two, II, division three recruit. I still, for some crazy reason, just thought I was going to play sports my entire life. And somehow that was going to be my career. Certainly naive. I look back fondly on it because certainly I loved playing sports and still do to this day. Many of the life lessons that have led me well, I learned by playing team sports. Back then, somehow I still thought that I was somehow going to be a professional athlete. So you have that mindset, but here you wind up at Villanova business school. Yep. How'd you decide, you know what, I'm going to Nova and I'm not playing basketball. Stop yeah. That. Yeah. Like I said, I was a division two, II, division three recruit, mostly in soccer. I did play three sports and I did get some, I was approached to play tennis and, uh, and basketball as well at some different schools. I actually had a scholarship and I had the scholarship document, the, the papers I needed to sign for University of Tampa, a division two school, I remember it should have been the most fulfilling, happiest time for me that I had this athletic scholarship opportunity. It was actually a really miserable 
time for me when that scholarship um, letter got sent to me because I realized that point, it became real for me. I didn't want to go anywhere other than Villanova. So I do have to back up. So born and raised in Philadelphia, basketball by far my uh, favorite sport. I was a young kid and teen and high schooler while Villanova was building that 1985 championship team under Raleigh Massimino. I had a marble notebook. Most people that are going to listen to this podcast probably won't remember what marble notebooks were, but I had a marble notebook where I literally kept the stats for every Villanova game that was televised in this marble notebook. So now back to that kitchen table, University of Tampa scholarship, I broke down crying and I said to my mom, I don't want to go here. I want to go to Villanova. And it's funny. I got my mom and my parents on a technicality. My parents had said to me, if I got a scholarship, any, I was permitted to go to that school. And I think they meant it in the context of a full scholarship. I had gotten a $500 scholarship from my high school and I used that against my parents to go to Villanova. I said, well, I got this $500 scholarship. I want to use it to go to Villanova. I pay for lunch. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, but I will tell you again, to their credit, they knew that was my passion and they enabled it. And I was really fortunate that my parents and grandparents effectively enabled me to go to Villanova. We were almost classmates at University of Tampa. For 20 minutes, I was going to the University of Tampa. They came to my school, thought it was really cool. I think Lou Pinella went there. I was looking at who went there. Yeah. And uh, I was going there for 20 minutes until a reason set in. Then I wound up not going there. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So you're in Nova, you graduate. What's your first move out of Nova? So I had a great four years at Villanova. I, I think I did well one semester academically. The rest, enough to get by. In hindsight, realize the value of the education. Uh, certainly the, the, the classes and what I learned were valuable. But honestly, more valuable were the people that I met and the relationships that I met at Villanova. And again, I didn't have that. Yeah, I didn't have the benefit of hindsight at that time. I just was having fun at school and developing friendships that ultimately ended up for life. When I graduated, I had not focused much time trying to figure out what I was going to do post-graduation and for a job or a career. I took a job with a guy that lived across from me in the apartment complex that I lived in my junior and senior year at Villanova. He didn't go to Villanova. This was not an on-campus uh, apartment. It was an off-campus regular apartment complex. And this guy owned a tire recycling company. They literally recycled tires. But he offered me a job and I knew him from the apartment complex. I thought, all right, I need a job. And I took that job and worked at this tire recycling company for about nine months. Realized, it was a really big lesson for me. I realized after the nine months, if I'm going to work for the rest of my life, I better work on something that I'm personally interested and passionate about. And recycling tires was not that. That's a great life lesson. You have to figure out almost what you don't want to do before you figure out what you want to do. I started as an accountant and I went in and I was maybe for, there was a, I think there was a year in 1996, if there was an award in Pennsylvania for the worst public accountant in the state of Pennsylvania, I might've got it. And, yeah. uh, but you had no interest, no passion. You had, you had to figure out what you didn't want to do. How'd you get into the sales world? So to walk us yeah. through that. While I was working for the tire company, I um, reconnected with uh, one of my best friends from Villanova who had graduated with me, a guy named Scott O'Neill. 
I always respected Scott at Villanova. I think he graduated number two in the business school with a marketing degree. He was the president of our fraternity and just he was incredibly dynamic. Like everybody, everybody loved to be around Scott. So I, I had a lot of respect for him. During this time period, I went to lunch with him. I said to him during the lunch, what are you, what are you doing? Have you got a job yet? And he told me that he had started selling season tickets for the New Jersey Nets, the NBA team. Through the course of that conversation, I can remember to this day, that's 30 plus years ago, I can remember the energy picking up inside of me. And it was like, oh my God, wait a second. I always wanted to be a professional athlete, but maybe the next best thing is to actually work in sports. And that lunch and that conversation with Scott was the thing, like you just said, Joe, where I finally figured out what it was that I did want to do. And so from that point forward, I was obsessed with figuring out my track and how to start my career in sports. What was your first official job in the sports world? What were you doing? I do steal others' ideas with the best of them. Scott was selling season ticket for the New Jersey Nets. My hometown team was the Philadelphia 76ers. And so I thought, what better than trying to sell season tickets for the 76ers? After not getting a return call the five or six times I called the 76ers, I literally showed up on their doorstep on a Monday morning and effectively got an informal interview that day. It ultimately led to me getting hired by the Sixers. How long are you with the Sixers for? I was directly with the Sixers for two seasons. I mean, on the tail end of my second season was when, if you're from Philadelphia, you might remember this. It was when Comcast came in and bought the Sixers, the Flyers, the arenas there, the Spectrum, which was the old arena. And then what was the core state center when it started? It's now the Wells Fargo Center. But my second year was when Comcast came in and bought those teams and, and venues. And so I, I ultimately then worked for Comcast Spectacor, not the Sixers directly anymore. You basically chose yourself. You basically, no return call. You show up, work your way into an interview, get an interview. You wind up with the Sixers for two seasons. You spent some time with the Eagles. How'd you go from the Sixers to the Eagles? I, I want to back up to answer that question. Other than Scott, Scott O'Neill, giving me the idea to work in sport, he did share with me how he went about getting his job. And part of it was this process he told me he went through where he spent real time prior you know, to getting that job whiteboarding out exactly what he wanted to do with his career. It wasn't that complicated. He just said he had on his bedroom wall a couple whiteboards and one where he was just writing down the things that interested him. Things We had many things in common, basketball, New York. And once he outlined the things that interested him, he moved on to the other whiteboard and he started writing companies that he thought would enable him to pursue these interests. And so I did the same thing. And what I ended up coming to was this goal. It just naturally came out of this process where I said, you know what I want to do? I want to be the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm a basketball nut. I'm a Philly nut born and raised. And I'm bold enough to think that back to that thought that I can accomplish anything, that I could become the CEO of the 76ers. From that point forward, it drove every career decision I made. It was my compass. 
I want to be the CEO of the 76ers. So everything now was about how do I get there in the most efficient way? So that was showing up on the Sixers doorstep and selling season tickets. That was moving over to Comcast Spectacor and selling sponsorship. Because I knew if I needed to be the CEO, if I wanted to be the CEO of the Sixers, I needed to learn the entire business and I certainly needed to know how to sell. So now your question, the Eagles, I knew I needed management and more leadership experience. At the time, it didn't look like that opportunity was going to come fast enough for me with Comcast Spectacor. But the Eagles were hiring a director of corporate sales, somebody that would oversee effectively their sponsorship team. And I was fortunate enough to get hired over there. And that was my real first management role. How long were you in that position with the Eagles as director of corporate sales? Very short period of time, one and a half seasons. What you learned from that and then what made you move on? I learned watch what you wish for, first of all. For those of us that think that we can go from being a salesperson and easily make that transition into management. I'm sure there are people that can do that. That wasn't me. It hit me like a ton of bricks, what it was like being now responsible for others, not just myself. So leading and managing a team hit me like a brick wall, and I was horrendous at it. And that was one lesson you know, that I learned that this isn't something that I could just naturally walk into and excel at. I really had to learn how to be a manager and a leader, two separate things, but certainly interrelated. So that was a learning. The reason I left was about a year and a half in, that person, Scott O'Neill, ended up starting a business called HoopsTV.com. HoopsTV.com was a basketball website that at its peak was the second most popular basketball website in the world, only behind NBA.com. Scott asked me to join him. I've mentioned before, basketball is my passion. So the opportunity to get back into basketball, working again for somebody I respect dramatically. And it was during the beginning or middle of the internet craze. It was a really exciting time in the world. And like the combination of all that was too good to pass up. So I moved on from the Eagles and took a role at this startup company called HoopsTV.com. Why do you think it's so hard? And there's so many examples of it where the best salesperson is rocking and rolling for a number of years. They win President's Club, they're the number one one producer, and then they become the manager slash leader and they're horrendous. You see that so often. They're two different skill sets. Why do you think so many times you have the best salesperson become the worst leader? Where's that come from? There's tons of books on this, but I'll I'll tell you my experience because it was relatively straightforward. When you go from a salesperson, you're an individual contributor, and certainly you are part of a team, but for the most part, you're working for yourself and you're concentrating on you. Once you become a manager, what great managers realize is you're working for everybody else. You become secondary. Your role in a simple nutshell is you work for everybody else. Your job is to do all in your power to help make your team successful. I didn't realize that. And so I was still trying to apply the skills of being an individual contributor and telling all of my staff, this is how you do it. But it was how I did it. It wasn't what necessarily was going to make them best or get the most out of them. And it took me a while to realize that. The other thing I'll say is I was a really poor listener. I probably had been told that over the years, but it didn't register to me 
it really came into play as a manager because very quickly I turned a lot of my team off because they didn't think that I cared about them because I wasn't a good listener. I didn't necessarily take the time to hear them on anything. Those were a couple things that I had to learn really quickly if I was going to be able to continue as a manager, because if not, there's no doubt that management career would have ended really quickly. Yeah. Synthesizing what you said, those soft skills that may some salespeople have, some people don't, but what made you great in sales does not make you a great leader. That book, what got you here won't get you there. There's a point where it's a different skill set. And it can't be about you. So many times the salespeople are like, look at me, I'm on stage. Look at me, I got the biggest order. Look at me. If you bring a fraction of that into the leadership role, you're going to crash and burn. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great self-awareness. How long did it take you to get that self-awareness to flip the switch? Yeah. What I will say is it took me at least a decade to become a competent leader. I do consider myself at my core, a student of leadership from just from a a, a work perspective. Like I am always learning and I'm always failing, but hopefully learning and, and then taking what I'm learning from my failures from a leadership perspective and improving. And that's a constant journey that will never end. But Joe, like, honestly, a decade probably to become a competent leader. And so anyway, doing some research for this, saw one of the interviews, you were in some business forum and you kept bringing up test, learn, test, learn, test, learn. You learn, you adapt, you move forward. Could you speak to that test, learn uh, concept? Yeah. And by the way, it's not natural. I don't think natural for everybody to be comfortable with that. I talked to my wife about this quite a bit. She sometimes can get a bit shell-shocked when something doesn't go well and then, and freeze rather than then try to understand that not everything is going to go really well. And But the most important thing is, how do you respond to it and learn from it? And for me, I have some of that, but it just for some reason was a bit more natural to me. I think, again, it goes back to athletics when I was a kid. You didn't win every game. You didn't make every perfect play. There's no perfect game in, in, in sports. For me, I just naturally realized that if I was going to get better at anything, leadership, management, being a husband, uh, being a father, all the things that I care about, I was going to fail and likely fail more than I succeeded, but that I had to learn and get better. And so I certainly believe big time in this. And I think that I see many people in the field that I work in get shell-shocked from failure. They may have everything else necessary to become uber successful, but they can't get past kind of the constant failures that are going to come up in anything and move forward. I know I'm jumping around and this might be a bit of a ramble, but there's something I talk you know, to people about all the time. It's this concept of chopping wood, right? When you want to chop down a tree, you don't knock down a big tree with one one chop. It's constant chops in different parts of the tree. And that's this test and learn. That's the analogy that I use for it. I often am saying, just keep chopping wood. Try to be as smart as possible, but don't get caught up in perfection and certainly don't get frozen by failure. Keep plugging away, keep chopping wood, ultimately that tree will fall down. And that's how I, I do believe I live my life. 
there's very few D-Day landings where it's all at once. It's either success or failure. Like there's a, a most big things happen, like you said, like a, a hundred iterations. So little moves, then all of a sudden the tree falls and you have, oh, how'd that fall? A little tap knocks it down. It's not that tap. It's the 400 you did before that, That's that, right. that one tap up. Before we get to MSG in your time there, I saw you spent some time in a really interesting thing looking at your career. You sold video poker machines to China, right? In China. Macau. Yeah. I've said multiple times, basketball is my passion. My my number two passion is poker or gambling in an extended family of degenerate gamblers. I'm being a bit dramatic, but not really. When I grew up in that Port Richmond row home, there was always uh, a poker game, something going on in my house for money with the adults and the neighbors and all. And so I grew up with that. My father is a big horse racing junkie. Me and my siblings often were taken to Garden State racetrack with my dad, where he would give us two bucks to bet on one race while he spent hours betting on all the races. So I grew up with this. So my number two passion is poker. I had an opportunity to start a business during the poker explosion about 15 years ago, when the World Series of Poker really you know, kicked off with Chris Moneymaker and ESPN to start a a company that made the first ever fully automated electronic poker tables for casinos. I started it with two partners. One of the partners was the founder. He was the chairman and effectively had the, the initial business idea and raised the money. The second partner helped fund the business, was a part-time CEO, and I was the president. And I effectively built this business from ground up with these two partners by the time I left four years in, we had developed this you know, fully automated electronic poker table. We had gotten it approved and regulated and licensed in 17 different jurisdictions, US, the Caribbean, and Macau. And yeah, so I spent many trips over in Macau helping install these poker tables at the Venetian in Macau wow. and other casinos. Biggest leadership lesson you learned through all that. By the way, one of the greatest lessons I learned, whatever you do career-wise, do it with people that you're working with that you respect. One of my three partners, I hadn't known very well when we launched this business. And as time went on, it became really clear that we didn't see things um, anywhere near the same. And, And it was why I ended up moving on. And by the way, he was a great person. But I didn't invest the time to truly understand how he looked at business and looked at this business and made sure that it was the way that I generally thought about business and values and stuff. And so from that point forward, I made the decision that no matter what I did career-wise from this point forward, first and foremost, I'm going to make sure that I'm working with and for people that I respect. Show me your friends. I'll tell you who you are. Show me your business partners. I'll show you who you are. That's a great life lesson. Say moving forward here to MSG. A little bit of research here I did. You got probably the world's most famous arena. You're in charge of marketing partnerships, seven venues, two regional sports networks. Sounds like you might know more than me. You can... (laughs) You know, be our top salesperson. Yeah, the portfolio is second to none. It, it's truly, in my mind, the greatest portfolio of sports and entertainment and media organizations under one roof anywhere in the world. That's obviously a big reason I was attracted to coming here. And it's every single morning, literally and figuratively, I pinch myself and say, look, I'm a salesperson at heart. Like, it's just in my DNA. 
And I have the privilege of representing these great teams, venues, TV stations. It, like, it, there's not a day that goes by in you know, almost 14 years I've been here that I, I don't pinch myself. So with all that going on, just outside looking in, how do you set priorities? Because you could probably be so busy and so ineffective because there's so many ways you could take your day and things you could work on and projects, ideas, partnerships. Like, How do you decide all the opportunities thrown at you? How do you decide what's the priority? Is that, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I'm I'm going to mention a couple things th- that that answer the question. First is another essential job of any good leader is making sure they're able to communicate really clearly the vision of the business and ultimately the strategy and goals. It's really important of any leader that you have to be able to really clearly communicate that vision, strategy and goals. And so A lot of what I spend my energy on is making sure of that. But that in and of itself isn't enough. The the second part that I think is more important is building the right culture and environment by which your team will operate in. And a lot's talked about, and there's a lot of words thrown around about culture. For me, it's actually... relatively straightforward. And I learned from some of the best. So again, Scott O'Neill, Seth Berger, who I worked with at N1, um, another that taught me great lessons about culture and many others. But it's really simple. It starts with what do you and your team want to hold each other accountable for from a value perspective? It starts way back there is what are the values that you and your team believe are essential to that's going to dictate how you behave, how you operate, and what you hold each other accountable for. So way back when I started here, one of the first things we did was we did a bit of an offsite, two-day offsite, and we built this together. That offsite was really about asking ourselves that simple question is, what are the values we want to establish and hold ourselves ultimately accountable for living on a day-to-day basis. And we developed them together. It wasn't something I dictated. Matter of fact, probably I, I didn't come up with any of the core values, but to this day, we still live under them. They're transparency. It's this concept of sharing everything. Now, that's what transparency means for us. We share information, we share credit, and we hold ourselves accountable for it. The second is integrity. And integrity is really simple for me to explain. It's that visual of the angel and the devil on each shoulder. And it's really easy to do things the right way when things are going well. But we know in business, things don't always go well, let alone in life. What are we holding ourselves accountable for when the chips are down and things really get hard? And we strive to continue to make sure that we're doing things the right way and we're not taking the easy way out when things get very difficult. And then the third is this concept, we call it of greatness, or you could also call it competitiveness. The way I describe this is while we do have a privileged career and what we get to do for most people may seem a lot of fun working in sports and entertainment, it's difficult. And there are long days and long nights But this concept of greatness, the way I describe it is, I look at every day like a 15-round heavyweight championship. That's the stage we're on. It's the biggest stage in the world, and we're in this heavyweight fight for the belt. And some days we win the fight. Some days we get the crap kicked out of us and we get knocked out. But when you get in the next morning, 
It's round one of that new heavyweight fight. And so that's the culture part of it is we live that and we developed it together. That coupled with being really clear on your vision, strategy, and goals. And I I know this is a podcast. It's probably not video, but I'll show you. So what you're seeing, it's probably upside down to you, is our annual goals, strategies, and tactics sheet. And this is just, again, about a tactic to be really clear on the direction we're rowing. If you as a leader are doing those two things, it doesn't necessarily matter how complicated the portfolio or what you're leading is. If you have a proper culture where everybody knows how they should behave and operate, and then you're really clear on where the boat needs to be rowing, then it's fun because then now you're able to take advantage of the power of your team. That's awesome. Just to synthesize as the leader, you start out with a couple simple questions with your team. One, you did not dictate what the mission was or what the value statement was. You let them dictate it to you what it was, but it was based on what you be- what we all believe, what are our values, what are we going to hold each other accountable for? And then uh, basically it's built on transparency, integrity, competitiveness or greatness, and then a lot of collaboration. Yeah, correct. Awesome. No, that's great. That's great. Before we leave MSG, you had to summarize your what, 15 years. If you had to synthesize it into a sentence or two of what you learned as a leader, how what would you summarize it? Yeah, I, there's a few things that come to mind, two of which I've already shared, which are, but just MSG brought it all like really succinctly to me. The first was this concept of working for others. In my 14 years here has been an amazing journey about that. And again, I fail more than I succeed, but I finally feel like I got it right here, that my focus is proper. My job is to help others that are on my team succeed. It's helped me in personal life just as much that that same concept of caring about others and that we serve others, not ourselves first. That That's one of the lessons. One of the other things that I would say about here is that I am fortunate that I work in our industry on one of the biggest stages in the world, literally and figuratively. I think I've learned over the years here that you know, and I, I get to deal with a lot of really important people, business-wise, CEOs, owners, certainly billionaires. But I've come to the realization as I've worked here that everybody's a human being, that nobody was born as a billionaire necessarily, that they have their own shit just like everybody else does. And that's really helped me quite a bit in terms of being able to connect personally at, at a human level with, with anybody. So I think those are a couple of things I would share. Oh, I want to shift gears a little bit here to go to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. I just want to ask you some questions so people can get to know you as a person a little bit better. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? Yeah. So I went through something last year that it might sound a little trite to say this was my biggest challenge, but because it's in my recent memory, I want to touch on it. So I elected to get fairly complicated surgery on one of my legs, on my right leg. I, When I was a teenager, I broke my right leg right under my knee playing uh, soccer. As I grew to become a full-grown adult, that leg grew slightly shorter than my other leg. And over the past 30 years, it's caused more and more physical ailments, mainly due to the alignment issues. And I'd, I'd have like really bad back issues and it was affecting my quality of life. So 
while we were all required to be home because of this horrendous pandemic, you know, it caused all of us to soul search in many ways. And I finally got to the point where I said to myself, I have to address this. And so I went and ended up electing to get a surgery where the surgeon intentionally broke my leg in two places and effectively reset it and allowed the gro- the bone to grow back so that my right leg's same height as my left leg. Incredible challenge in so many ways that you can just imagine, even if you haven't had it done, but it certainly stressed our family dynamic. For four and a half months, I effectively couldn't do anything physically on my own. And my wife, who is an angel, certainly had to take on even more of a burden for our family. All the stuff that I typically do with my children, including just going out in the backyard and throwing a ball around, or uh, I couldn't do for a long period of time. And then just me, I still am an athlete. I uh, get a lot of my energy by going to the gym. I couldn't do that for a long period of time. And so mentally, it started to weigh on me. I'm fortunate to say that I'm on the other side of it now. I'm thrilled that I did it, but in an incredible challenge the last year plus. A a few years back, I I blew my ACL out and there was about 10 days I was stuck at home and couldn't drive. I think I drove to Whole Foods five minutes down the road and I felt like I was in Hawaii. I actually got out of the house the first time in 10 days. It sounds like it's nothing and it's almost first world problems. That's the worst thing you ever went through. You're you're fortunate. It it changes your perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. No, thanks for sharing that. How about what failure of yours set you up most for future success? Do you have a favorite failure? So I'll give, you, I'll give you two quick ones. When I was a teenager, I got a job at a uh, local sporting goods store. I got the job because a friend of mine was already working there. He said it was a great job. He got me the interview and ultimately I got a job there as well. My first day on the job, I was working with my friend. We were the two that were working uh, the cash register at the front desk. And at the end of the shift, he took a small item and I said, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, no, the manager's fine with this. If we need the little things, he's fine with us taking this. And it didn't feel right to me. I didn't know any better. A week later, I took a small item. I stole something and I got fired. It it obviously hit me like a brick wall. I had to go home and tell my parents that I got fired from a job for stealing. So that, that was something that has stuck with me my entire life and taught me that there is right from wrong. And while there might be different ways to be right, you typically know inside what's wrong. And it reminded me that when it doesn't feel right, I got to really check myself. Uh, And I've lived that way since. Second one is back to my poor listening skills. I had that friend and respected person, Scott O'Neill, be the one that called me in his office one day and told me that I was a a horrible listener. And he said that if you don't improve, it's going to limit your career growth. That was another time it hit me like a brick wall and caused me to really acknowledge that he was right, that I was a poor listener, ask for help, and ultimately get on a path to trying to become a better active listener for the folks that worked with and for me, but also my family and friends. How'd that make you feel? Someone that you respect so much that come in and pull you aside and say that you're basically horrible at something you think is basic, like a fourth grader could be good at listening. That particular skill set is just, you weren't there yet. Like, how'd that make you feel? It's like my kids every once in a while 
will say to me, mom or dad, when you raise your voice with us for one reason or another, that's not the hardest part. It's when you say you're disappointed about something. Mm. This guy that I was as close as you could possibly imagine with, I feel set me on this unbelievable career path. I ended up getting the opportunity to work with multiple times, was telling me he was disappointed in me. I had been told many times prior by others that I wasn't a good listener. It didn't register until he told me. How about with all the stuff you got going on, when you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? Yeah, I I mentioned earlier, Jim, and and even now after the leg surgery, it's even more of kind of my nirvana. But I try to get to the gym almost every day, even if it's only for a few minutes. And certainly physically it helps, but it's way helps more mentally and helps clear my mind and get my energy back uh, to being positive and and rejuvenated. And then uh, just real quick, second thing I'll say is our family, we, we were fortunate enough. We had a dream that we realized about seven years ago, being from Philadelphia, we took vacations to the Jersey Shore quite a bit. About seven years ago, we were able to actually buy a house in Avalon at the Jersey Shore. That is my, that's my place of peace. Even when I know I'm about to leave to go there, uh, it already calms my mind. So those are a couple of the things that I do. That's awesome. How about what book influenced your life or changed your mind? Do you have a favorite book? There's many, but when I was, again, just starting after graduating college, somebody had recommended a, it. It's a, an obscure older book. It's called The Magic in Believing by an author named Claude Bristol. I read this book. It got me back to remembering what my mom ingrained in me when I was a, a younger kid, which is you truly can accomplish anything you want in this world if you put your mind to it and you're willing to sacrifice what it takes. And that book, I read it at the perfect time at the beginning of my career because it got me back remembering that and not letting the noise of what others were telling me I should or shouldn't do continue to get in the way of what I personally uh, wanted to do with my life. Awesome. The magic in believing. Very cool. How about most high achievers have a routine, either the way they start their day or end their day. What's either the first 60 minutes or the last 60 minutes of your day look like? What's your routine? I'd like to say I'm one of these ones that gets up and meditates and does the family time. And I'm not perfect with that, but I am a man of routines. I do tend to get up relatively early when possible. I do see my kids out prior to them leaving for school. And I'm embarrassed to say my wife often drives me to the train station. So I get to spend some good time with her. I, I drink one cup of coffee a day, which gets my energy going. I still read the newspaper, the physical newspaper front to back. I feel like that a little bit of family time, the caffeine, and then this newspaper ritual gets me really ready for the day. And then I end my day, by the way, you know, typically with the gym, like I talked about. What's your coffee? Do you have a specific bean or? Uh, yeah, Dunkin' Donuts hazelnut. Oh, you go. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. I'm not a Starbucks. It's too much for me. It's too rich. <laughs> I just need something to get me going on. Cause I'm not a natural morning person. Perfect. How about what's your personal definition of success? My personal definition of success is having relationships where they care about you as a human and you know it, and you have enough of them where you care about enough people and will do anything for them. And I know that's a little bit cliche, 
And I wouldn't have answered it that way 20 years ago. But as I've kind of matured, it, it has become more important to me to have these trust-based human relationships that the more of that that I feel I have, to me, makes me feel more successful overall as a human being. There's a great saying, no trust, no nothing. You know, if, if it's not reciprocal, there's no relationship there. So that, that's great. It's funny you say that. I did want to say one other thing. You know how like this concept of trust, you always hear this saying of you need to earn my trust, you need to earn my trust. Somebody once told me years ago, or they suggested to look at it different way. They said, whenever you come across a new relationship or somebody new, imagine if the world was one in which you just gave trust right away rather than waiting for somebody to earn your trust. And they said, think about what a better world that would be. And I love that. Imagine if we all just gave trust right away rather than assumed the worst or negative right away. Absolutely. There'd be a few people that would, you know, that would yeah. blow that up, but 98% of the people you come across would give it right back. No, I agree. The world would be a better place. How about if everything you got going on now, looking forward to 2022, what's the most exciting project you're working on? Now? My daughter, Alex's college choice. Really? So, cool. so our first, our oldest child, Drew's a freshman at Northeastern. So he was the first. And I loved every bit of how much he involved me in the process and, and Alex the same. So like literally this morning, I was planning our president's weekend trip to Southern California to visit colleges. And I got to tell you, nothing gets my energy up as much as seeing my kids excited about something and being a part of it in some way. That's fantastic. How about one thing we over we glanced over. So you're basically running the, the the most famous venue in the in the world, and you have all the teams, and you have all the sponsorships, and uh, you have all these partnerships going on. Then COVID nineteen comes and just shuts the world down. What's the biggest lesson you took from the COVID nineteen shutdown? That the most important thing in this world is human relationships, and that if you live by redeeming values, you can get through anything. So, Joe, on March 13th, which is effectively when I looked at my world shutting down for COVID, we were literally the Big East tournament was at at Madison Square Garden. There was a game going on in the Big East tournament that got halted at halftime. And from that point forward, Madison Square Garden was shut down for months. That weekend, I was talking with my management team. We were literally like leaning on each other personally and professionally, certainly, what do we do? And one of the first things that one of them, he just blurted out an idea. He goes, I don't know how long we're going to be out, but we're all going to need each other. Why don't we set up daily end of day Zoom calls with the entire group, over a hundred people on our team. And it was just a simple concept or reason why we did it was just, we're all going to need each other. Certainly, we were going to need each other work-wise, but it was actually more about, this is a crazy situation none of us have dealt with personally. We're going to need each other personally. And so it was hard, and it still is. We're obviously still not 100% out of the woods with this, but the fact that we had these values of transparency, integrity, and greatness, the fact that we hold ourselves accountable for caring about each other on a human level first, really helped get us through it in a way that if we didn't have those kind of linchpins to fall back, likely would have been way more difficult. 
It's about human relationships. That's fantastic. How about of all the amazing people that flow through MSG, all the shows you saw, sporting events, what's the most memorable event you ever attended live at MSG? I get asked this so many times and I change my answer so many times because <laughs> it, it is truly the most famous arena in the world. What we have come through is unbelievable. But last year, this actually is COVID related. Last year, the first event Madison Square Garden had where we were able to have full attendance was game one of the Knicks playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. And that was the first time the Knicks had been in the playoffs in seven or eight years, a big deal. But more than that, it symbolically was the reopening of New York City. And I would actually go further due to, again, the the exposure that Madison Square Garden has globally. I look at it sometimes as the unofficial reopening of the world. And if you were in that venue, it didn't matter whether you were a Knicks fan or not, everybody had experienced COVID in some manner. And what you felt that night was unrivaled. And I've gotten goosebumps many different times at events, but I don't know that anything compared to that night. That is cool. Thanks for sharing that. Wrapping up here to be respectful of your time. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? Certainly the ones that I shared work-wise permeate my personal life too. This idea of transparency and sharing everything is one in which we try to model the behavior and yet we certainly talk about it, whether that means being honest, right? And that's kind of part of transparency. This idea, again, all of my kids are athletes or competitors in other stretches. And this idea, my, my daughter's an actress, this idea of sharing credit, even if hit the game winning shot or you're the lead in the play, you don't get there and you don't have that success without others. We used to have these three rules in our house with our kids, only three rules. One was do great in school. The second one, have fun. The third was listen to mom and dad. When our kids were so young, they weren't wise enough at that that point to figure out number three is a catch-all that basically enables mom and dad to make any other rule that we want. <laughs> we tried to keep it simple there. But this idea of having fun, too, was really important to us. They can do anything they want in this world. Start with making sure you're a kind individual that care about others, but then go for greatness, whatever that may mean for you. Let's just summarize there. Listen do great work, be kind. That's that's fantastic. Last two questions. We're at MSG right now, but we started out in Port Richmond in Philly. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? My mom, I wouldn't have to tell her anything because she's my biggest cheerleader. She would have said, I knew you were destined for this. My dad, I probably still, but it would be sarcastically now, not out of frustration. I would have probably said, I told you. And then my brother and sister, we've been on you know journeys together that have interplayed with each other and then not many different times in our lives. I think I would have just smiled and they would have got it. That we're just each, we're the, the biggest cheerleaders for each other. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? You always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Awesome. Bring a little Wayne Gretzky. Always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. That is fantastic. Ron Skatarzak, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us. Amazing 
stuff you got going on up there. And I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. I was looking forward to this ever since we scheduled it. Certainly going to be the best part of my week. Thanks, Joe. Hey, people are looking for you or uh, MSG online. I know it's not hard to find, but uh, where can they find you? Yeah, look, www.msg.com for company stuff and ron.skatarzak at msg.com is my personal email. You got it, Ron Skatarzak. Thank you so much. Wish you nothing but continued success. And I hope you guys rock and roll in 2022 up there at MSG. Happy holidays, you, Don, and the kids, Joe. You too. Take care. Thank you. Hey, buddy.